And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Black and Blue Pod. I'm your host, as always, Matt McLaughlin, here with a very special guest. This is an award-winning journalist. We only get the top-tier guests on this show that at least are willing to respond to me on Twitter. So I really appreciate that. Um, he is a sports business beat writer for The Athletic since 2019. He is the one and only Bill Shea. Bill, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, no problem. There are so many questions I have because I am a simpleton. And once terms like NFT and cryptocurrency come up, my, my brain just goes all over the place. But first, how did you get to becoming a major uh, beat writer about sports business? Like, what was your journey? What was your origin story? Um, it's not super exciting. Um, I went to Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, um, whose sole claim to fame is they beat Michigan State in their 2000 championship season. Um, there you go. Yeah, uh, 21 years ago now. Um, so uh, I, I originally went as a film major um, and ended up um, needing money to eat food and live. And I went and worked worked for the campus newspaper um and have been in it um almost 30 years now um so you know i worked for some small just local newspapers things like that um and in 2006 i went to cranes detroit business cranes is the big b2b um media uh newspapers like mm -hmm. advertising age auto week auto news um and they have uh b2b business magazines and D detroit's one of them um and then at some point and i don't exactly remember when another reporter who casually wrote about um the business of sports in detroit and michigan um didn't want to do it anymore so i'm like all right well i'll, I'll do it i have a sports background um <laughs> So when I just sort of took it upon myself um, to make it more, it was basically like a tertiary beat, like a third string yeah. beat, because I, I was writing about transportation and marketing and advertising, things that all came to help me in, in sports later on. Um, but I eventually made it a, a first tier beat with a, a newsletter that had more than 20,000 subscribers and, and things like that. I mean, Detroit, uh, when I was doing this, had a, an extremely active sports business scene um you know a little Caesars arena was built in, in, in a bankrupt city and i covered the finance of that uh, and all the scandals and things um and you know the, the tigers and mike illich was just writing the fattest checks he could find to <laughs> sign the prince fielders and miguel cabrera's of the world so there was just a lot going on um not a whole lot of other people really cover this um i mean there's a there is a a, a nice cadre of sports but you know full-time sports business folks out there now um you know darren Ravel sort of got it started in the early to late 90s early 2000s um and more and more media outlets were like hey you know people spend billions of dollars on this stuff and um you know it, it crosses all aspects of american and, and world society people love sports you know it's like eating and drinking and driving and uh, all the other things that as human beings do um sports is, is part of that and i'm not the biggest you know I'm, I'm not sitting there every night watching six episodes of sports center or anything yeah but uh that's that's not my thing i i love i'm from cleveland originally so i love my my hometown Ooh. teams that disappoint me so much. <laughs> um, um, but uh, but I, I, I'm very interested in how sports, you know, is sort of at the intersection of culture, politics, economics, um, that sort of thing. Um, fun stuff, serious stuff. So I, I just sort of fell into it one accident <laughs> after another. And, and here I am today doing it nationally for the athletic. And that's what's crazy about um well, at least what's wild me as a college student when i hear about certain reporters they got certain positions because you know this is what they thought that they wanted to do and they were just so driven to do this one specific thing and then they get to that point or they don't they never get there and i think it's kind of refreshing to hear that um you know taking some of the opportunities you think won't work out are the ones that work out the best and with that comes, I think, in any journalist career is failure. Like, was was there any memorable moments where you were just like, man, I really messed that story up and I or I messed up this specific detail that other people may not pay attention to. But me writing the story, 
that's going to drive me nuts. Like, was there any specific failures uh, that you've experienced along the way that you remember and just took away a huge lesson from? Um, you know, one of them, uh, and I, I don't think this is representative of, of me being any particularly skilled person or not, but the only thing that really jumps out in my mind in terms of what I would call a failure is um, years ago, this was still, in, you know, within the last 20 years, wrote a story about um, a company that a guy had founded and sold off of, like back in the 1980s or something. And he's really old. I thought he was dead. Um, I, I was convinced. I was convinced this guy was dead. And he wasn't even that important of a detail. It was the story, the, the new owner years later. Um, he wasn't even in Michigan anymore. He was long gone. And I put the word late in front of his name. It turns out he was very much alive. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was very early. He wasn't late. He was very early. Yeah. And he was really old, but he got a kick out of it um, until he decided he could leverage it for opportunity for himself. Mm. Um, you know, we all ended up apologizing. You know, it was a very, I mean, it was an embarrassing thing. I, I hate that it happened, but it was materially didn't affect anything about what I was reporting on. And I don't even remember the gist of the story, <laughs> only that I said, basically, this guy was dead. Um, he is now dead. Um, <laughs> and, and I in no way celebrate that. Um, <laughs> other than thinking maybe like, we should take that correction down because <laughs> he, he is late. Um, now, he just, now he's officially late. Yeah. I was a little early before, but now yeah. we can we can throw that late label yeah, on there. Exactly. Um, but, you know, the, the lesson was even if you think you absolutely know something but it's not like in your wheelhouse like i like i know the lions play at ford field that's an indisputable fact mm -hmm. if there's some old player like I'm, i i this guy's dead well double check yeah um always make sure if you're not like if you haven't written about it, if you haven't read about it in a, in a you know, respectable source recently, um, double check things that you, you're pretty confident about, but it's not your area of expertise. You don't have firsthand knowledge. Um, and I was older, you know, I was in my 30s probably when that happened. You know, it's embarrassing. I was apologetic, um, but it was a good it was a good reminder lesson. And thankfully, it wasn't a bigger like factual, you know, undercut the story or the journalism aspect of it. It was an unfortunate mistake, but it was a pretty low level um, error. Um, other than that, I, there's a, maybe one or two things in the 30, you know, I go back to the first ever newspaper story I wrote for publication was in high school. So that was 1989 or 90. Um, mm -hmm. So 30 years, there's one or two things I've regretted in retrospect writing. Um, I'm not going to go into details about that. It was just the, the people turned out to be shedheads. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I'm, I just, I am constantly worried about making mistakes. Um, and one of the things I learned at, at Crane, I had some really awesome, fantastic editors. Um, and one of my editors, the top editor, she, she was the executive editor of the paper. Um, you know, she would spot holes in stories from a million miles away. Um, she should have been like editor of the New York Times. I mean, she was <laughs> she was that good. And it taught me like you can't hide stuff. The public will know your bosses will if they're any good will know. Um, but to, to write what you don't know, say hey, this is what we don't know. Um, and there was she, she dinged me a few times like, hey, do not do. Where is this thing or where yeah. is this intellectual thought leading to? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, well, that's obvious. You don't know. And the readers will know that you don't know. So I, I learned, and that was, you know, mid-career. Well, I hope not in mid, but maybe early career. Um, that sometimes you're, you know, not a, a football game. You know, I know the outcome. Um, mm -hmm. But if there's something where you don't know, and it generally happens with political or economic reporting or, mm -hmm. or things where people have something they want to hide or don't want to say. Um, and if you don't know something and you got to write the story, say, this is what we don't know. Don't try to hide stuff. Um, a good boss, a good editor will find it. And I absolutely guarantee the public will find it. And the comment sections <laughs> will let you know, um, you know, I wish we didn't have comment sections, but they do point out mis like mistakes that need to be corrected. Are, um, are you always uh, constantly looking at the comment section or do you just turn that off, delete it? Just um, don't deal I with it. I, I wish I could turn it off. Occasionally, we will not <laughs> we will not have comments available on very sensitive stories. We know mm -hmm. 
the trolls will show up. And when you're as, I mean, the athletics got 1.2 million subscribers now. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, it has evolved into any big media outlet. You get that many people, you're going to get some knuckleheads. Um, oh yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's mentally taxing at times. Cause I, I, I do write about things like race and sports, um, diversity and equality, um, social justice. Um, and I write a lot about TV, uh, sports TV viewership audience, what mm-hmm. drives what we're watching or not watching and how technology it changes affect what we watch and don't watch. Um, and sometimes that is, there are political aspects to that. <laughs> and uh, yeah. in the age we live in, that will, that will bring them out. Um, and, and sometimes I don't care. Um, there was a story that went up yesterday I did on the WNBA and it's merchandising. And there was a couple of knuckleheads in there um i'm just yeah. like i'm not gonna respond i'm not gonna respond i'm not gonna respond you gotta um, like take a couple of breaths and be like they're just trying to get on my nerves they're just trying to get on my nerves turn everything off we'll be fine yeah so yeah i mean it's a struggle for me sometimes because i like to engage people i like to you know, i like talking to you know i'll talk to college classes and things and i like to i really like explanatory journalism i do a lot of you know just actual faqs about things Mm -hmm. um that we published and people really seem to like that you know explaining like i did one earlier this year what is peacock you know nbc streaming service when they announced that they were going to shut down their sports cable channel and basically shuffle a lot of stuff to peacock um i did an faq explaining hey here's what this is how it works why it's happening the ups and downsides. Um, so I, I enjoy that, but that sometimes involves dealing with pupils that don't want to learn um, or are just there to shoot spitballs. Yeah. That, but exactly. that's, just the, that's just the nature. And I'm old enough, to, you know, I, I have one foot in the old era. You know, I was in newsrooms that still had uh, t- typewriters when I was very young. I mean, we, we had computers too, but man, we had hot wax. Yeah, paste, my, paste. my generation is like, when I hear typewriter, I'm thinking like World War II, like the president's sending a telegram <laughs> to the overseas yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Well, they were electric typewriters at least, but I oh, forget. There you go. They were used for like forms and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, we old school, old school technology, but you know, back then when I was 21 years old doing this, you had to like write a letter to the editor and, and put a 32 cent stamp on and mail your trolling you know, to, to the newspaper <laughs> back then. It took they'll, some work. They'll get this joke in five days when it gets there. Yeah, exactly. So now people can do it. Um, I would be a huge fan of all comment sections going away on everything anyway. <laughs> I, I think that the, the benefits do not outweigh the the corrosive toxicity of comment sections, um, especially after what we've been through in, in recent years, um, this country, that it's just any story can turn political um, and often yeah. does. And it's crazy and it's tiresome. Um, so yeah, if comment sections would go away, if I had a genie that granted me three wishes, <laughs> I would strongly consider one of them being comment sections going away but I, I would i would be in favor i would be on the same boat as you I, I think comment sections are very risky they do not typically plan out or go as well as you may think especially when you're writing about something such as the WNBA, like you mentioned and we're gonna get to some of like the interesting sports topics uh, and sports business and stuff like that i just find it really cool that in today's like you know media landscape there's a there's an appetite for understanding like the economics of sports i think that's really cool because you didn't necessarily like get that um and ever and with comment sections like in general i just hate that people i've talked about this on the podcast repeatedly that i hate that the idea that my validation has to stem from the likes i get the comments i get the followers i get all that type of shit i hate it so much because why would i put so much value into a, let's say it is a person because 50, 75% of the time it's a robot. Why would I put so much of my mental health into what you do or say about the story that I'm writing? And I totally agree. If we can get rid of comment sections. They're great sometimes, but other times they're just, people are there just to fuck with you. And, but what I do think the reward is so much greater when you do get that one pupil that does want to learn, that does want to understand, Hey, how do I, how do I figure out like TV contracting rights and understanding that? And that's what I really enjoy about your content is translating stuff that numbers and analytics, especially with television rights, um, into like simpleton terms for me, for people like me that don't necessarily get it all the way. 
So I'm, I'm not even sure I 100% or anybody, <laughs> even people that have been in the TV industry for 50 years, I don't think there's yeah. anyone. It's like a, it's like Excel. No one understands exactly how oh all God. of Excel works. There's no, no one person that is like the Yoda of Excel that has all <laughs> of the knowledge. Um, the broadcast industry is sort of the same way. And you, and you put two broadcast industry people in the same room, they will not agree on anything at all. Nope. It's the trends in the future. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, sometimes the comment section is great. Like in the WNBA story, there was a ton of people commenting that validated um, the point of the story. And that feels good. Like I knew we were 100% on um, mm. what we were reporting. We had talked to people. Um, but then the comment section filled up with people saying, yeah, I, I, you know, I can't get this jersey. I can't get this hoodie for six months or it's not, a, it's not at a game. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice to see um, validation with real world experiences and when it outweighs the trolls that's nice um, yeah and that's a great transition because i do want to talk about this uh wmba story that you wrote and it's on theathletic.com if you're interested uh and have a subscription uh, i highly recommend you check it out it's about you know the wmba compared to the other major sports leagues to put it lightly uh is struggling to deliver its merchandise on time to its customers and that's a major issue because WNBA, I, I'm not going to lie, growing up, I, like all kids, I was very naive. I was not a fan. I did not take the WNBA seriously. But now as I've like kind of watched some of the games, I appreciate the purity from a basketball perspective. And it's not like the NBA where they're just like, um, you know, just rely, like no one's playing defense in the NBA, sometimes there's no one's playing defense. Everyone's just running up and down the floor. Whereas with the WNBA, it's very much like fundamentals because um, I'm, I'm going to catch heat for this probably, but the athleticism level is completely different to the NBA. I think that's a fair statement. And to the basketball fan, I think the WNBA is more appealing. All this is to say that how does the WNBA address getting merchandise to its fans while they have fans and like how do they deal with this problem moving forward yeah um they made a, a huge leap last week when they landed the national distribution deal with dick sporting goods um you know that's 700 some stores um and they have they have stores in all dozen wnba markets um but that's that's huge um mm -hmm. It's not entirely on the WNBA. They have to convince or, or help convince retailers like, hey, you need to carry our, our stuff. There is yeah. a demand for it. And finding mm -hmm. the sweet spot, I, you know, and when I talked to the commissioner, um, you know, she made a good point. Like retailers don't want to get burned and they won't get burned more than once if they flood their shelves with something nobody buys so you know retailing sports merchandise is an art and science yeah um you know and the wnba is 25 years old this year um and they are at or ahead of where most of the other men's major leagues were at at 25 years old in a modern context um I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, there is excellent basketball. It's it's not the NBA, um, and people shouldn't expect it to be the NBA. Um, but there are incredible, you know, the world's best um, women basketball players play in this league, mm -hmm. um, or or most of them at least, and they are incredible athletes. And you know, I I started my my journalism career in college covering women's sports. Um, I covered the, the, what was back then the Wright state lady Raiders, basketball, softball, soccer, tennis. Um, mm -hmm. so I, you know, I understood like, it's not a fair comparison of, you know, what they have their own unique attributes, both of them. And I yeah. enjoyed the heck out of it. And, you know, to this, other than when I'm, you know, with LeBron and the Cavs, I watched, <laughs> um, you know, and I grew up watching the, you know, the Cavs when they played at Richfield with Mark Price back in the eighties and stuff. Um, but uh, no, I, I, you know, and early in my career, I also covered the American Basketball League, which was a sort of rival um, to the NBA. And I think that lasted like 96 to 98. Um, and it was a, you know, big women's basketball league, you know, the top players and that or the WNBA, one of the two was going to make it, one wasn't, there just wasn't a market. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some of those, 
some of those teams were fantastic. You know, the Columbus Quest with Katie Smith and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, these are great players yeah. um, playing basketball. Um, so that's a long way of saying um, the WNBA, they are taking, I think, the right steps. They know that they acknowledge there's a problem, um, but they still have a lot of work to do. Um, there's no excuse why teams don't have all of the jerseys that people want, hoodies and whatever else um at a team store or you know game day kiosks things like that it's a league that's still fighting for equitable treatment and it, i don't think anybody expects in the in the wnba from the commissioner down to the players to have the exact same thing as the nba these are not the same entities um and the players understand that do they deserve better than they're getting um yeah um, they, they had, you know, with the, the new uh, labor deal, you know, there's more money available. And it, this is happening at a time when corporate America is sort of following the cultural lead of, hey, women's sports are good and fun to watch. Um, we don't have to compare it to the men's league, but the, the, the treatment, you know, the pay, the attention, things like that. It's a case of, you know, if you build it, they will come like you stick a WNBA game on national broadcast TV, there's an audience. Mm-hmm. They'll get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people watching. Um, so there is an audience for it. There is demand for the merchandise. We'll see how the Dick's deal plays out. Um, you know, but it's not entirely on, on the, the W either, like Nike and Adidas and, and stuff, who, yeah. you know, with shoe deals and one-offs where it may not be the team, you know, a team licensed, uh, you know, Chicago Jersey or something. Um, but they need to do more of that. There is demand for that. And I think the league understands that they can push, um, you know, Nike talks all about, you know, uh, women's athletics and, and wanting to do things and, and shoes and things like that. I think it will continue to get better. I don't think we're going to backslide. Um, and, and these women will get the attention and the money they, they deserve for, for what they're doing is, you know, are any of these teams ever going to be as big as the Lakers or the Knicks in, in those markets? Probably not. I mean, maybe, I mean, who knows what a hundred years will be like from now or 50, who knows? Um, <laughs> but uh, there's room for growth. There is audience and there's more money to be made um, by everybody involved. And I, I think they will, they will get there eventually. For sure. And I think a part of that is the timing of, you know, this, generation in this you know current media landscape i know we talked about comments and stuff like that but i think the use of social media has been exponentially helpful for the wnba and i you know we talked about trolls and stuff like that but the wnba gets to showcase its personalities such as a candace parker brianna stewart a um oh there's another player that i'm blanking on um but anyway my point i digress being able to showcase that these are relatable people and these are personalities that you want to see play now, you know, especially with Candace Parker. I was, I really enjoyed watching her on NBA uh, inside the NBA on TNT this season. I think she's really, really good uh, for media. And I think she's an even better player. One of the best players on the planet. And like you said, these are some of the best players on the planet. They just happen to be female. I think they just happen and people are, so easy to be like oh but you're not going to see like a 360 through the legs windmill dunk and it's like yeah but you're going to see a good basketball game no matter what and I'm really excited because I think it's awesome that young girls can turn on a basketball game and have a target league and say like yeah I want I can get there or I want to be there with Candace Parker Brianna Stewart etc um I mean is is there I it's just so strange because like how does the NBA ever help the WNBA? Like would that ever come up? And I know you wrote about this in the article where the orange hoodie, the iconic orange hoodie that Kobe wore on the sidelines, that was one of the top 10 selling products on fanatics. Does the, would it be fair for to say that the NBA does eventually help the WNBA at some point? Yeah. I mean, several of the teams, uh, WNBA teams are owned by NBA owners. Well, that um, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it used to be all of them. Um, they are separate entities now, but there are, there is cross ownership and, and they do swing deals together. Um, the last TV deal, not great. 
25 million dollars um a year is what they're getting from espn i i don't know what their cbs number is um mm-hmm. it's a little harder to get that data um but you know in terms of audience and things they're about the same as major league soccer which is getting considerably more money um out of their uh, you know the american television deals um I think they will get a lot more money. I mean, they're not going to get a billion dollars, you know, jump from 25 million to a billion. Yeah. I think in their their next round of TV deals in a few years, they will get a lot more money. Um, and that will go a long way to help. Um, and I think, you know, w- NBA players, you know, you mentioned Kobe and others have worn the orange hoodie and have advocated for the W and for women's sports. And I think we're at an inflection point, an ongoing inflection point in, a, in American society um, where people are going to take it more seriously. Um, you know, the, the women's national soccer team has been a, a big leader on this and in demanding, Hey, you know, it doesn't have to always be equal in the case of the soccer team. You know, they bring in more revenue than the men's team and they win um, and they win a lot. <laughs> um, so there's, there's a lot of progress being made. Um, I, I don't know all the intricacies of the the NBA and the WNBA's relationship behind the scenes. Um, mm-hmm. Could they be doing more? I, I think they want to, and I think they will. Um, it's still a collection of owners. Um, nobody wants to lose money. And yeah. I don't know. If, and I know what Adam Silver and other have said, and I've talked to economists. It's I've never seen the books on the WNBA or the teams, mm-hmm. how much anybody is actually losing money. Um, especially with the prior salary structure, didn't pay players very much. Um, they don't fly charters. So it's hard to pinpoint where the expenditures were happening. It's very possible as a whole, it does make money. Um, but the people that own these teams, especially the cross-owned teams, are immensely wealthy, and they're almost always men. Um, people you know that own that are billionaires. You can afford a WNBA team as, as yeah. a line item out there um i'm optimistic going forward i think there'll be struggles there'll be potholes they'll hit here and there but overall um i think it will definitely grow um and i'm i'm excited to to see that because i think it's it's healthy and and i'm very optimistic about you know gen z young millennials gen z um and it's not just it's not just girls and, and women i mean men I'm far more likely to watch a WNBA game than I am to watch a, you know, a Phoenix Suns or Detroit Pistons game. Um, really? That, that, that's really interesting to me. Can you like dive in on that a little bit? I, just because I, you enjoy the product more? I, it's, and it's not, because, you know, I, I, you know I, I still love to see, you know, Steph Curry hitting some three from like the parking lot or something. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, you know, and you know, the 360 windmill dunks. I mean, how often do those happen in a game? Um, you know, it, it's not like it's nothing but dunks. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of dunks yeah. and threes. Yeah. Um, but it's because I grew up in my career covering women's basketball. That's um, and, I, and I've known some of the players and, and you know, some of the, the people who are legends in women's basketball now. I saw some of them play in high school and some of them are now retired, which makes me feel <laughs> really old. Um <laughs> And then I'm older than all of them. <laughs> um, but uh, it's like you said earlier, it's a, a typically a very sound fundamental game. Um, and they hustle, every, you know, as harder, harder than the men do. Um, and there's elbows flying out there. There's people are John. I mean, there's players who are known for running their mouths and stuff like that. So, you know, Americans love a little bit of pro wrestling style drama around, their, oh, yeah. around their sports. The W has that as well. Um, it, it offers the, the same, same stuff. And, you know, I've, always, you know, so, and I'm from Cleveland, so I always love an underdog because we don't have anything, but yeah, you know, I don't think there's friends. ever really a favorite in Cleveland. <laughs> yeah. Um, I said Cleveland rockers were good back in the day. That was hey, there you go. W team a million years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, you know, but like I said earlier, I, you know, I don't sit down and watch a ton of any kind of sports. If I see a yeah. W game on and I'm in that mood, yeah, I'm going to watch that, especially with how the Pistons have been, you know, I live in Detroit. So yeah. Um, yikes. It's, it's not a, not a whole lot of that. I'm turning on, um, you know, and but since LeBron left the Cavs, um, I could I would have to think really hard to even name outside of Kevin Love who's on the team anymore. You know, at, it's, at this point, yes. 
It's just kind of like whenever he pops up on my TV, I'm like, oh, I forgot Kevin Love's on the Cavs. Yeah, it's I sometimes it feels like the Cavs think that too. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it, and that's that's and not taking anything away from the NBA. It's people. It's big. It's huge. I've written mm-hmm. a lot about it over the years. It's it's fun. Um, I I love social justice angle and you know how they and the w have both been in the vanguard um yeah. sort of dragging the rest of professional sports in this country along with them and opening up doors and, and things like that you know and and you know and i've written about you know there's the the you know shut up dribble aspect and i've written like stories on that's not happening anymore like there's, there's the athletes aren't going to go back and and be meek and uh, you know they discovered they have a huge platform that can affect change and get conversations going and they're gonna do that for their own labor situation and the the wider cultural situation in this country so it sort of touches all of the checks all the boxes yeah and and people are always going to be listening or at least keeping an ear open to whatever a lebron says um you know, Kobe, before he passed away, I, I was always scouring for Kobe interviews because he doesn't talk very often in public. It's why the last dance is so popular. People don't really hear from MJ. Um, and I think the important thing, especially with the societal part of it, with many of the critics is I encourage people to remember that these are people, these are these athletes that we hold on such a high pedestal pedestal, um, they're, they're humans at the end of the day. They have different experiences. They have different cultures. They have different backgrounds. And does it really directly affect you if they are calling for a social justice reform act to be passed or this specific action? Like, does it directly affect your life, your day-to-day life? No, it doesn't at the end of the day. And I encourage athletes to use their voices. I encourage athletes to use their platforms. And I'm excited that I get to live in the athlete empowerment age um, yeah yeah it's uh my thinking and, and i forget where i read this originally years ago but professional athletes collegiate athletes they are ordinary people with extraordinary talents um that's exactly but, true but yeah i mean it's you know the, the 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 dude sitting on his couch between his kroger gigs or whatever telling <laughs> lebron to like you're just a basketball player shut up well, <laughs> you know don't bring college don't bring politics into this well it's the absence of politics is is political too. Telling someone to shut up and dribble is a political statement. Um, silence can be a political statement. You know, Jordan got dinged for his the infamous you know Republicans buy sneakers too comment mm-hmm. 30, 30 years ago, whenever that was. Um, yeah, things things have changed, and these these athletes have enormous platforms, and there's enormous amounts of money involved, and they stopped games from being played at different points, and you know the owners, the owners see and read the headlines. I know many of them are on Twitter because they hear about it. <laughs> um, they are susceptible to to pressure, and that's and that's what protest is. is isn't about getting everybody to agree with you it's making people uncomfortable that is the point of of protest um and to get people riled up to get the conversations going and in my point earlier about gen z seems by everything we can tell is extremely receptive to that it is a more progressive generation than uh you know millennials i'm gen x um we're sort of the forgotten generation the you know hemingway's lost generation and gen x is sort of the same way we always get overlooked in the polling and stuff like that but um <laughs> I, I i think um what we're seeing the, the you know the tv networks that are always skeptical and scared of, of any sort of waves being made realize yeah. that hey we want that we want that 18 to 24 we want that 18 to 49 demographic this is what the polling says fans of the nba you know republicans going on about like oh i'm not going to watch the nfl oh, i'm not going to watch the nba well they weren't watching in the first place yeah um you know the nba and, and the nfl i think just this week came out and basically said you know we haven't seen you know because their their rating their their viewership is been remarkably high at a time when people are watching less and less television pointed out you know in their own their own studies politics didn't have anything to do with or was so infinitesimally small it it wasn't a needle mover on you know last season when everybody lost audience Um, yeah yeah, WNBA didn't lose the audience last year um 
but um you know there's a lot of posturing by a small group of very loud people including the former president um and, and you know, i've and i've written about all of these things and that's where the comment yeah. <laughs> section comes back into play um, and yeah i i'm sorry to cut you off there but like no. i i understand like i have family members that are i have a family member that is in the police force and obviously i'm not going to side with all cops are pigs just like i'm not going to side with these athletes are SOBs. It's not like, and I understand why people may say that they have family relations and say, I'm not going to watch sports. It's not my preference. That's fine. But like, if you're saying, okay, I'm not going to watch and you don't watch. And then you have the balls to say, oh, the Eagles suck. They should have done this, this, and this. No, no. That's like, I didn't vote last, last, this past election. I'm not complaining about the president. Like that's just, there are certain things that's just, it doesn't add up. And like we talked about, my generation is much more, much more receptive to being progressive and much more, I guess, open door policy ish. Like we're just very more open to listening to other people, um, which is great. But then other times with social media, I think that my generation has a tendency to kind of run with the perspective. And I think just for instance, like LeBron tweeted out during the playoffs, um, if the NBA listen, I don't have the exact tweet in front of me, but I'm paraphrasing here. If the NBA listened to me on injuries, then none all of then none of this would be happening. I think it was it was right after another. I think it was Devin Booker maybe or Chris Paul, um, and that type of stuff. And people were defending LeBron and people were going at LeBron. I personally didn't like that just because I'm like, dude, you like you're out of the playoffs. You don't have to open your mouth. Like I I injuries happen in sports i don't get why that's a big deal but when it gets to be like the backlash is so much for saying one thing that's where i have a problem because i think you should be able to say what you have to say to an audience that is open to receiving that and saying okay well here's why i think differently but that's not how the internet works so fortunately <laughs> i got a dream it, it is not and i don't think at this point it it ever will be it is we're, no. we're stuck with what we got I'm hope my hope is that it's like a pendulum and like everything kind of like swings back to like, I don't know, like wild, wild west where like people are just like, I'm going to go live out in the woods. That's what I want to do. <laughs> just move out to Colorado, live in the middle of nowhere in a log cabin and maybe go hunting once in a while. That's my that's yeah. my dream life from 50 to like until I'm dead. But it, it, there's a lot of conversation within the media industry itself about gatekeeping um, and, and forever. That's what your mainstream media was. Um, mm -hmm. They decided, okay, this is what we're going to put on TV. This is what we're going to talk about on the radio. This is what we're going to write about. Um, and then the internet arrived. The democratization of information was a great thing until we discovered there was a lot of um, bad actors <laughs> at play. Um, not even just the trolls, but people with intentional disinformation, yeah. um, foreign actors trying to, to cause you know, trouble with the Republic and things like that. Um, so it's, it, and this has happened in a very compressed timeline. Um, you know, for much of my life, when I was a little kid in the 1970s, um, very little kid, you know, we had, a, you know, we had this 20 inch color Sony TV in the family room and we had ABC, NBC, CBS, I think a local PBS station in Cleveland and a couple local channels. And that was it. Yeah. Um, a few years later, we had cable, and that was it for a long time. And then my dad worked for Burroughs, so we were, which is a computer company. Okay. Um, so we were actually like downloading video games in the early '80s. Wow. Uh, the old direct dial BBS systems, and that was nice. Like, no one call us because this 19-hour <laughs> download of like Frogger will be destroyed <laughs> if anybody calls us. Um, but, uh, you know, and I, I, my first email I ever sent was 1989 or 90 prodigy. Um, then I was away from it for a long time, but I, that was a, I, you know, I was getting an early taste of what wider society society got by the late 1990s and then the 21st century. Um, and I actually got away from it for a while because I couldn't afford AOL as a, yeah. as a young guy. But, um, the point being, you know, 
the, the changes in mass communications were relatively slow for much of human history. Mm-hmm. And then the last 20, 25 years, man, we just went into, we snorted all of the Coke and went into overdrive and we have not, <laughs> we have not shut up since. Um, no. Yeah. It, it, it is insane. When I think about even just, just take the last year, even in the last year, all of a sudden TikTok has blown up and exploded into millions of dollars. And I w- I'm reading a book actually on um, Stan Musial, the old Cardinals uh, mm-hmm. baseball player. And in the book, it says, oh, yeah, he got a raise from $30,000 a year to, I want to say it was like $35,000, $37,000 a year, like during the war, which was a big deal. Um, and that just blew my mind because I'm like, Giancarlo Stanton and Bryce Harper and all these guys are getting paid 300, 400 million dollars over these these long, lucrative 30 million dollar a year contracts. And I'm, and I'm just flabbergasted because I'm like, how did this happen? How did like quarterbacks go from making like ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars in a yearly salary to now Patrick Mahomes is getting paid half a billion dollars to play football? It, it's crazy when you think about it. Yeah. Oh, the, the demand for live sports and the NFL absolutely blows away everything else yeah. on television. The, the, you know, the number of people watching television PUT has dropped, I think 20% um, year over year, since like since last year, just fewer people watch it, but the NFL eyeballs are going up yeah. um, and live, live sports. You see all anybody that has a streaming service or just is a standalone streaming service or fancies themselves some type of streaming service is jockeying to get live sports rights um, because it is so much more resistant to the declines, the, the cord cutting. Um, but, but yeah, I did, it's, it was a little bit before my time, but when, uh, Joe Namath got drafted by the jets back in the sixties, um, and I think he got a $400,000 contract over yeah. 10 years or something like that. But people were like, Oh, this is the end of sports. This is all, it's this criminal and yada, yada. Uh, the money is there. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the, the markets in action. Um, you know, they have their labor deals and things like that but the networks are willing to pay for this content. We are all willing every Thursday, Sunday, and Friday um, to watch the National Football League, and that that fuels the numbers. And, you know, these guys have a very narrow window of time in which to capitalize on their earning power as, as athletes, quarterbacks in particular. Um, I think the average NFL career is three years. Um, yeah. quarterbacks might be a little long. It's, it varies by position. Um, but in general three years, so you have this narrow, narrow amount of time and I'm like, Hey, go get paid. Yeah. Um, you know, cause the, just for me personally, it's like either the players are going to get the money or, you know, the tech billionaire who already has 17 yachts is going to get the money. <laughs> um, or, exactly. Or some TV executive that only has 10 yachts is going to, oh, get yeah, of course he's so the, poor the money but yeah this this is the market forces and american culture entertainment at work um but yeah it's uh occasionally you still hear like the practice squad referred to as the taxi squad yeah um in in baseball and in football and what that stems from is um in the 1940s mickey mcbride he was the the founder of the cleveland browns he was the first owner 1946 he owned the the checkered cab company in cleveland and in the off season, um, or when guys were hurt, um, he would give them jobs driving cabs. So wow. when, when, it, when a guy was hurt or that, you know, they wanted a guy, but they, you know, they didn't have room on the roster or whatever, um, that became the taxi squad. That's where that, that term originated from. Huh. And it was very common for a long time. Guys had to work, you know, the elites, uh, the elites, even back then still made a, for the time, you know, a pretty damn good salary, but mm-hmm. most of those guys had, uh, you know, a lot of them sold insurance in the off season. If yeah. They were I, relatively. In- f- yeah. And if they were relatively famous, they could, you know, be a door greeter at a casino or something like <laughs> yeah. that. You know, even uh, as, um, as an Eagles fan, one of the legends, Chuck Bednarik sold concrete. That's how I got concrete yeah. Charlie. Um, but we talked about like ratings a lot and you wrote a piece on the Nielsen ratings. And to my generations, the Nielsen ratings mean nothing. Like, why are we still using this? I mean, is is it one of those things that's just like going to stay around until it dies? Because like, I 
we we've talked about like streaming services and stuff like that. To me, the Nielsen ratings just seems like a very antiquated way to try and judge how many people are watching something. But at the same time, it feels like the only way to judge it because I haven't really heard much about like streaming services numbers because they don't have the rights to broadcast live events. Yeah. And a lot of the streamers don't want to share their data that it's the walled garden situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Netflix is rarely going to tell you much less share with rivals um, numbers on stuff. Um, The thing with Nielsen is, you know, there is, there are third party organizations who exist to ensure that things like metrics, you know, TV, um, and, and streaming numbers are measured by a uniformly agreed set of criteria um, so that you can compare things and sell sell advertising um, knowing that hey, everything's going to be measured the same. Well, with streaming now and people with their you know, proprietary about their numbers, it's hard to do. And that's why we're in the situation we're in. And, and Nielsen has acknowledged they undercounted in 2020. Um, part of that it was because they were not sending their techs out to their the Nielsen family homes to like make sure the equipment was updated, uh, tuned tuned right, and that sort of thing out of a safety thing. And I think they dropped from, I think it was they had about forty one thousand Nielsen families or households, and that dropped to like thirty. But I, I yeah, could be, I could be wrong there. Um, but yeah, it is with the rise of, of streaming and, and digital viewing and, and stuff like that, you know, the, the situation has to change and I'm not quite sure how it will happen, but there has to be a universally agreed upon set of like, this is how we measure and everybody has to share their data mm-hmm. or somebody's always going to be trying to get a leg up on somebody yeah. else's Comscore and, and all the others, um, you know, various uh, Adobe analytics, they're, they're a big part of all of this. Um, and there's a lot of posturing going on with Nielsen being like decertified and all this, but everybody's still of pumping course. out, pumping out the Nielsen numbers because it is, it is the currency of how the broadcast industry works. Mm-hmm. That's you buy your advertising based off, you know, you know, expected audiences and that audience is measured through the, the Nielsen panels. Um, I, yeah. I don't see them going away. I, they'll they'll buy up Comscore. Someone will buy them. Um, I, I think we'll get to a better place than we're at now. Um, but I tell you what, it is a really interesting time to be writing about sports audience and viewership um, yeah. because it is, it is wild out there at the moment. And with the pandemic, just driving down almost everything. I mean, even the NFL, I think, lost about 7% of the audience last season. Um, and the Super Bowl had its lowest rating since Super Bowl three. Um, speaking of the Jets and Show Namath, um, <laughs> but uh, and was down to what like ninety one million or something like that. Um, you know, and and Nielsen is trying to get better with streaming and uh, what they call out of home, which is measuring people who are watching in bars and restaurants, airports. Uh, yeah, that's that is audience as well. Um, but there's also privacy concerns. You know, it's not just mm-hmm. like do you want your TV measuring everything that you watch and do? A lot of, a lot of people don't. Um, really? You know, oh yeah. I, I'm not sure. Like I, we don't have any, like we don't have any voice activated. We don't have any of that in our house. Cause I don't need Mark Zuckerberg listening, you know, which uh, obviously he's not, but. Um, oh, my dad is all on board with the voice activated remote. He can't work the buttons cause his fingers <laughs> are too fat. So he's, he's all on board with the voice. But then he like yells at the remote and sometimes I'll hear it slamming against the wall. And I'm like, oh, that dad must be having trouble with the remote now. <laughs> yeah, I'm old enough to remember my grandparents remote being two buttons and they were spring operated. Oh, um, my. They they turned the TV. It was one of those TVs that was like 500 pounds, like, a, <laughs> like, a, like an 18 inch screen inside of a massive wooden cabinet. Yeah, um, it, was like, it was like a mini ATV packed into a, a television. Yeah, and it had an on off and a channel. I think it just went up. So if you missed your channel, you had to go all the way back. Cycle yeah. through. Yeah, it was it was spring operated. You could hear it inside there. That was oh I mean that was gosh. that was old That's even funny. at the time back in the it was probably the mid eighties or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, we we don't do the the listening stuff. I'm I'm just not a fan. And there's a lot of other people that have concerns about like, hey, is do I want my t you know my TV telling people that I'm watching, you know. Uh, uh, Chrisley knows best or whatever <laughs> trash TV is 
is out there. Yeah, it's, it's oh. just like I don't want to feel like a number. I just want to have some privacy and just sit and do whatever I want or watch whatever I want to watch. Yeah. So so that's I mean that's you know Fourth Amendment and privacy concerns are are, are an issue too that. Um, and then them not sharing with each other um, because, yeah. you know, there are billions and billions of dollars at, at stake, um, you know, and now Amazon is getting in on everything. Um, all sorts of, you know, non-traditional media players. Um, you know, it's not just, um, you know, NBC and CBS and, and Disney with its yeah. you know, ESPN and stuff like that. It's, it's, everybody is, is getting in and, you know, who knows what Elon Musk will come up with in six months, you know, <laughs> beaming shit right into our brain somehow. <laughs> and how do you measure that like exactly exactly so. people are just going to be watching like netflix through like on their eyes like through some chip or something while they're doing yeah. like an excel spreadsheet at work yeah. and, like and, it, and all of the science fiction writers have been warning us for like a century like be careful what you wish for oh there was something um and there was an announcement that i was i was reading this article that apple is trying to develop technology to to detect when you're depressed and like detect mental health changes and i was thinking this is literally like shit out of irobot i do not want my phone knowing when i'm like depressed and i'm not sleeping because then they're gonna think okay he's sleeping at this hour we can rob him at this point and then steal whatever we want at this hour like i was just not fucking with that that just freaks me out yeah, and I and I and I don't know how like Gen Z or the next generation's um, tolerance for what that will be like. If you grew up in a world like that, you don't know any different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I grew up with a, a foot sort of in the analog era and then the digital era, so I've seen both sides. You know, typewriters to Macintoshes to, to <laughs> whatever we're working on next. Um, but yeah, that's that is a, a concern. Um, and the, the sci-fi folks for a long time have warned us like this this could get messy you know skynet's it's... skynet's gonna launch the nukes at some point because it <laughs> determines mankind is the threat um yeah this it's you know it goes back to jurassic park you know you did you know should we be doing this not can we do yeah. it but should we do it um and a lot of people say yes other people say no then the robots come alive and eat all of us and that's the end of it. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's, that's going to be wild. But at least in the short term, I kind of want to switch gears to like NFTs and cryptocurrency because NFL players are want to be paid in crypto now, which to me, again, a simpleton doesn't make any sense. And same thing with NFTs, because like I grew up collecting baseball cards. I have the binders. I have the duplicates. I have everything like the... And to me, it was like the digital transition into NFTs, especially with the sports card boom now and sports memorabilia in general, is so strange because I'm like, you can't possess the NFT and you can't possess the cryptocurrency or like Bitcoin or anything like that. So is it really worth as much as you say it's worth? Like, does that make any sense? Like, I'm just trying to like, what yeah. is this shit about? There's a ton of debate and questions around this and i've been writing oh god for 10 months now about this stuff um and I, i'll try to give you the best rundown and and i'm i'm still like forming opinions on some of this because it's another rapidly changing environment um, yeah some some nft products now come with physical perks um there are there are people like oh you buy this nft thing like I think it was the Dodgers were doing like NFTs of their championship ring. Well, if you were like the top bidder on like the top prize or the the most expensive package, you got an actual ring too, a physical ring. Um, When Gronkowski did his NFTs months ago, like one of the bidders won like a chance to meet him before a game and tickets to a game, Uh... including physical perks, which does give you, I think, a more cross-generation generational appeal a lot of people argue that crypto and blockchain and nfts are tax dodges um others will say well it's you know it's a realm that's been dominated by like you know drug dealers and gun runners and (laughs) tax evaders and things like that you know real model citizens yeah exactly and that's there is you know that stuff has been linked to, to cryptocurrency um 
the problem I see with cryptocurrency, there's a lot of them, like my wife briefly just, to, she wanted to learn about this stuff. So got into the Dogecoin thing briefly, made a small profit off. It was great. And that was enough. The problem with it is it, it's, you know, the fiat currency, it's like the US dollar is backed by the might and power and trust in the United States government, which at times is kind of suspect, but they also have, you know, tanks and guns and <laughs> jails and things like that. You know, there's the power, the regulatory powers as well. Mm-hmm. The problem with things like Bitcoin, um, and I had somebody tell me a decade ago when Bitcoin was like in pennies, like you should buy a bunch of this. And I'm like, you're an idiot about everything in your life. I don't believe you about this. <laughs> and had I done it, we wouldn't be having this conversation because I would be living on my island right now. Yeah, sounds um, about right. Next, next to your 10 yachts, 10 or yeah, 20. Exactly. But the thing with it is it's a speculative thing at this point. It's like an mm-hmm. investment. It's not a currency that you can reliably count on as a way to conduct business, the volatility is insane. I, I talked to the president of the Oakland athletics before the baseball season, because they were selling a suite for uh, like $60,000 worth of Bitcoin or something like that. Um, and I asked them like, Hey, you know, they're showing some real volatility here. Is that a concern? It was basically because they're in that part of California where this stuff is like, that's where the market yeah. is um, and, and people who are investors and understand it. So that was a one-off for them. The volatility didn't matter because it was their suite and they could sell it or not sell it. And it's the A's, you know, it is, it is what it is. And but that, it, that audience is typically going to be more like knowledgeable about it or more yeah, buy into it more. The, the people into that would yeah. be willing to, to spend that sort of money to, for, I don't, I don't remember how many games, 81 games or whatever it is for that suite. Um, mm-hmm. But if you were just running a business and you were pricing your product or service based on your costs and what, how much you want to make a profit and somebody wants to pay you with this uh, uh, cryptocurrency and today you say it's worth $50,000, but tomorrow it's worth $35,000. Well, I can't reliably price how I do business based on that. That's a huge problem. So it's been speculators and the people that got in early at the top of the pyramid, so to speak, made a lot of money. Um, yep. the people spending like, oh, I'm going to buy, I'm going to spend 50,000 bucks to buy one Bitcoin. Well, okay. Now it's down to whatever it is down to today. You're, you're running at a loss. You can't run goods and services. Now, does it stabilize eventually? Maybe. I, I don't know. I, if I knew that, I would be either pumping all my money into it or not. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And when it comes back to NFTs, a lot of criticism of NFTs, a lot of people just don't understand why. Um, and then a lot of people try to explain why, you know, a 1952 Mickey Mantle tops card is worth, you know, $5 million in the best condition. Um, but it's also at the end of the day, just an old piece of cardboard. Yeah. Uh, with a photo on it. Why, why does that have a certain intrinsic value? Um, whereas a digital thing does not, I mean, there is the argument. Yeah. It's, a, it's, you physically possess it and a market has emerged over the last 60, 70 years that says this old stuff is worth a certain amount of money because people are willing to pay for it um, because of the emotional attachments we have to professional sports and athletes. Um, whereas with NFTs, uh, I think there is a segment of people that see it just, you know, like NBA Top Shot. You get this basically sexed up YouTube clip of LeBron dunking with stats embedded and all this, you know, to make it funky. Um, and that's fine if you want to collect that or if you want to buy it to try to, you know, resell it on the secondary market for a profit. Um, I mean, people do that with baseball cards too. I mean, mm-hmm. people people are, are getting in all the, the breaks online and stuff and investing because, you know, it's a lottery ticket. And if you get a good one, it can change your life. Um, but at the end, it's still a lottery ticket. But some people just buy because they want to have all of the, you know, 2021 uh, Kansas City uh, Chiefs football team cards. Yeah. Um, there will be people now that the NFL is into it that like, oh, hey, here's all of the Chiefs highlights. I've collected them all. Cool. And that's yeah. just, that's the way they do cards now for them. Um, but then if the blockchain goes down, if the power goes out, if your phone isn't charged, you don't have access. 
Yep. That that is one problem with it. Um, now how often that happens? Not often. Um, but I, I think where we will see NFTs and blockchain technology is backshop is where it has real value. I think we're probably past the at least in sports the like initial title wave of interest. You know, and if and NBA Top Shot sales or and resales that are about seven hundred some million. I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I don't think the NFL product will sell to that level. Um, why? And, why do you think that? I, I think there was the initial hype wave. Um, oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I think the there are problems with the NBA Top Shot. I mean, they they're still in beta, which they have said. Um, you know, people trying to get the money out that they, you know, like, oh, I sold a card for ten thousand dollars, or you know, a clip for ten thousand dollars. I can't get my money out of it. There is a lot of unsatisfied consumers with that and to be fair it's dapper labs who's the company behind top shot they are working on that this is still a new technology a new consumer product um there have been lessons learned i assume the nfl product because it's a much bigger audience they're going after with pro football in this country um they they need to have their act together um or to be a real problem. I mean, it could kill the whole thing. If, if yeah. it blows, blows up, then that's going to be a huge black eye. Most NFT sales at this point are avatars for gaming or art. That's where one expert told me that we'll probably do 10 billion this year in NFT sales. Um, wow. Yeah. So, which is a lot, but you know, the NFL will make that amount of money in its TV contracts. Yeah, exactly. It's, that's it's what's even, a, that's what's even crazier. Yeah. For me, it was just like the NFT stuff. It's like, I, again it's a generational thing like i think um i guess having something in front of you gives you that satisfaction of like oh my investment was worth it because i have the proof right in front of me mm-hmm. so maybe i'm just old school and i just prefer to have the physical cards but yeah, I think a I, lot of people do i think that's that's true for a whole lot of people because when mm-hmm. i write about nfts about half the comments are like why the hell i would rather have a physical card <laughs> and then some nft guy is like well it's you could cut out a picture of mickey mantle from the newspaper and it's just like having a card well it's not but it's i get the point yeah. um like i'm sitting here at my desk at, at home and i'm i have any number of uh slabbed or or uh uh, no, trading cards just in holders as i have a 1954 bowman autogram and a 1985 bernie kozar there wow next to me um and yeah i would rather have those than nfts to me if i ever had an nfts it would be as an investment like i'm not doing this to collect because i'm not going to walk around holding up my phone saying hey look at this paul pierce dunk that i got <laughs> um that's just not and some people will and some people people will increasingly live in a digital world on their devices and their phones and that will appeal to them and if that's how they want to do things god bless them go go do it i don't think baseball cards are going in any away anytime soon that market is much bigger um i mean look at look at fanatics their new trading card company already has i think like an 11 billion dollar uh value assigned to it and they have yet to produce a single product and won't for years because those yeah. licenses don't start for two or three years. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, there is still value in the paper products, but all of those card companies are all into NFTs too. I mean, you have to at this point in my email box every day is some like, <laughs> Hey, the Iceland's third tier women's field hockey junior varsity is launching an NFT. Do you want to write about it? I'm like, no, no. Like, I'm, I'm not. I like, but there are still, I, if it's a really powerful reason, I'll, I'll do it. But um, I, every day, every day I get NFT story pitches, um, sports, non-sports. Um, you know, it really has to catch my eye to write about, because if I write about one, well, why not the other hundred? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I, but I think we're past the wave. I will be interested and I will follow how the NFL top shot or whatever they end up calling it. Um, to see how that does. And that's one of the things that makes my job easy. There are the stuff you can track. You can track the prices of this stuff. That's the advantage yeah. of blockchain. And that's where you're going to see the technology really find practical uses is in things like ticketing. When you buy a ticket to an Arizona Cardinals game or whatever, at some point that'll be an NFT. Now you're it's not going to be like a top shot. It'll just be the ticket on your phone, but it's going to come up a blockchain. So 
and you're like, okay, I paid a hundred bucks to, to watch the Cardinals on Sunday. Oh, I can't make it. I mean, I'm, I'm going to sell it to my brother-in-law. Well, with a blockchain based NFT ticket, the team will know that you've sold that and they will be able to take a cut. If you sell it to your brother-in-law for 90 bucks, or 200 bucks, everybody's going to get a piece of that. And that's where the teams, the leagues and the players see this going that sort of back shop uh, infrastructure thing they will make money off of this and it's not going to just be collectibles it's going to be how sports operates they will find ways to employ this technology because of the, the public ledger aspect of being able to track everything and it's got a, a unique number so it can't be copied yeah um, you know and then there's the poor saps who have like a billion dollars in cryptocurrency, but they lost, they lost the key. Um, oh, that, oh my that, God. I would pay money to see that guy take his last attempt on that password. Yeah. And, the, and they're, what, what are they like? 64 characters, alphanumeric, whatever it yeah. is. And it's impossible. You know, a billion monkeys and a billion typewriters, that old <laughs> thing. It's never going to they're never going to get that number back. Um, so so that, would you, that, would you take that last attempt or would you just leave it alone forever? I would leave it alone in, because human beings are really clever about fixing problems and especially like shady problems. Oh, um, yeah. and, you know, there is no safe that cannot be cracked. I don't believe blockchain is, um, completely unbreakable or anything mm-hmm. like that and there have been instances um because there's because with nft when you buy them you still have to have the digital purse or the digital wallet thing there are yeah. vulnerabilities outside of the blockchain itself where you're still doing blockchain based business but it's in all the technology around it doesn't have that same security level um and there have been incidents in uh in the cryptocurrency and blockchain industry where people have been um, ripped off um, with their their digital wallets and things like that. Oh yeah. Um, so that's you know the Titanic wasn't really unsinkable. It turned out all hey. of this all of this technology. It's, it's, we are humans are great at solving stuff like that. Like oh, you tell me I can't break into this, and then ten minutes later, like they're inside <laughs> and they've emptied the safe. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well uh, Bill, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, any social media you want to plug any other upcoming projects or articles that you want to plug for the people uh just everybody please subscribe to the athletic and and i'm always at twitter at at bill underscore shay 19 um so please follow along of course he's considered a must follow so must follow him. uh again bill thank you for tuning for coming on the and everyone be sure to follow us like us subscribe rate share do the whole nine yards and we will catch you in the next episode